Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Britt Stenson. Britt spent more than 25 years working with IMG doing projects all over the world. And before he worked for IMG, he worked for the PGA Tour and was instrumental in the design and construction of some of the TPC courses. This is a fascinating conversation. We go a lot of different directions about the development of golf in the last 30 years. And we also touch on Britt's career and how he was kind of a late bloomer. But before we get going with Britt, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a giant supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad to have them on board and we're glad that Britt was able to take so much time to join us. Well, Britt, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. And we were just talking a little bit off air. I just realized that you were one of the people responsible for the Washington Golf and Learning Center, which I should tell our listeners, that's sort of one of golf course industry's home courses. It's five minutes from the office. We go there at lunch and hit balls, and we sometimes play a quick nine. That's the first thing I, I want to talk about here, Britt. Explain that project and what makes that project unique. All right. Well, Guy, thanks for having me, and thanks for doing the Tartan Talks. Uh, I know they're a lot of fun. I've been listening to a lot of them, and uh, I find them pretty informative and a lot of fun. Uh, you know, Washington Golf, you know, um, years ago, the first tee of Cleveland was trying to get a chapter pulled together, and there were about 15 or 20 of us that uh, got in the room, and somehow the fact that I was a golf course designer came up, so I got uh, nominated to be in charge of finding a site and uh, designing the course. And we looked around. We looked at several different courses. Uh, we had some help from a woman named Bobby Richtel, uh, who does a lot of public things in Cleveland. And she she came up with three or four sites that had potential. And this one, uh, Mayor White at the time, uh, Mike White, said, you know, he's going to support the first tee of Cleveland, but it has to be somewhere in close. He didn't really want to see a, a suburban situation. He wanted something that could serve the inner city kids that people could get to easily from the east side and the west side. And this was a tract of land that was kind of just sitting there. The school board had access to it. It was about 30 acres that they were hoping at one point to do a little agronomy thing and, and teach kids how to do some agronomy, but they never had the funds to really do it. So it was kind of just a forgotten piece of land uh, next to the steel mill, uh, but in a nice neutral spot, not really east or west side that much and, and easy to get to from downtown. So I said, you know, I, that's the one we selected. And, uh, you know, we went about raising the money to build it. And it turned out to be, I think, a pretty great location. In fact, one of the things you you know because you go there and hit balls, but one of the great surprises was opening up the site a little bit with the trees. There were a lot of trashy trees on the site, but we opened it up, and lo and behold, there was a view of downtown Cleveland, the skyline, uh, right from the clubhouse and the driving range area. So that was, I wish I had thought about the fact that I planned it that way to take advantage of the look, but that was uh, pretty much happenstance. But we had a lot of fun 
uh, raising the money, getting that done. And it's been, I think, a very successful program for the kids, and I hope uh, for adults like you. Just to give our listeners a, a visualization of it, it's it's one of the coolest things. It's in a urban neighborhood wedged between some industrial areas of Cleveland, and you see all sorts of people there, and you also see all sorts of wildlife. It's really a green space and a place where there isn't a lot of green space. Bert, at the time you were working for IMG, was it tough convincing your bosses that you needed to be spending time on that pro- project, or did this become a personal thing? Explain uh, what that, that that project was like for you in that time of your career. You know, I think we're, back in that time, it was uh, Mark McCormick was still alive, and he was uh, very open to that idea. And there was support within the golf division, a guy named Hans Kramer that a lot of people in golf might remember. He's passed on, but... Um, he was very uh, influential in, in getting me on the board and, and getting us involved. He thought, you know, come on, IMG's got to be involved in the first tee. It was still a very growing thing. Um, and I, it, wasn't, it wasn't hard to convince them for us to do it pro bono, and it was right in our neighborhood. Uh, it, it was really a pretty easy sell in that regard. Um, you know, and it was just enough land for a little nine-hole. There are a couple of par fours, but mostly par threes and a nice driving range, good short game area, big putting green. And it was right next to school that's it's, it's run as part of a high school program uh, that features horticulture, and I think there is a bit of a tie-in for agronomy. They have some of their students studying out there. Uh, so it's been really good in that regard as well. It's crazy to think this, but some of our listeners might not be familiar with the name Mark McCormick. What was it like working for IMG and with him? What did he mean to the game of golf for our listeners that maybe have never heard the name before? Well, and uh, yeah, he was he pretty much, you have to give him credit, I think, for inventing the whole idea of sports management uh, You know, he, with Arnold Palmer and, and Gary Player uh, back in really the very early 1960s, he was a good golfer in his own right and uh, got to know Arnold in college golf. I think he played in a in some U.S. amateurs, maybe even a U.S. Open. And, you know, he was a true visionary. Um, uh, he, he had a vision unlike anybody, I think, and really at uh, a worldwide vision. You know, he, it's a little bit odd that he was that it's centered in Cleveland or it was centered in Cleveland when he was alive, but that's where he was a lawyer and at Harder and Haddon and uh, but he had a world vision, um, which is one of the reasons I started working here at uh, at IMG was uh, because he was so involved with golf around the world um, and had an opportunity to. Uh, for his players, his signature players, to uh, want to do some golf design uh, in other parts of the world. But he was, yeah, you'd have to give him a lot of credit for uh, creating the whole business of sports management. So you grew up in Connecticut. You went to the University of Virginia. You have a landscape architecture background. How does somebody like yourself end up at a large global firm like IMG? Well, I was uh, pretty lucky uh, to tell you the truth. I was at the time I was working for the PGA Tour, uh, and I was even 
pretty lucky to get in that position. It, really starting when I was 15, is I want I got very into golf. Um, I wanted to, and I was lucky enough to play a lot of really fine courses in the Northeast as a junior golfer. And I think that became, uh, it just intrigued me is how unique all these courses were and what a cool thing it would be to design some courses someday. So I went to the University of Virginia School of Architecture, kind of hoping that I could learn about golf course design. And, of course, there was nobody there that was going to teach me anything about golf course design. But landscape architecture and land planning is a pretty good way to uh, learn how to understand a big piece of property and, and drainage and topography and vegetation and soils and views. And so I think it's pretty good training for golf course architecture. There are other ways to come at it. People have gone from the bulldozer or from being a superintendent or being a professional golfer, but I think uh, all-in landscape architecture is probably as good a prep as anything for being uh, a golf course architect. So I uh, I started with the PGA Tour in uh, 1984. I was doing the master plan for the community that surrounds the TPC at Avenel. They used to have the Kemper open right there in Washington, in Potomac, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. And I got very involved with the tour, getting it was a very complicated zoning, getting that property zoned. And it was a, a mixed-use, uh, very complicated pro- project. Uh, but I uh, spent two years with them after getting the plan approved, building the golf course. I uh, and really, I spent two years in a construction trailer. I call it my trial by mud because we were, uh, you know, we were as you do. Uh, you you fight the weather, and you uh, you go through a period where you think, "How is this ever going to go back together?" But then it does, and uh, that was really my initiation to golf course design. I didn't design the course. Tom Clark was all Clark designed the course, but uh, it led to me moving down to Jacksonville and, and supervising uh, construction of several TPC courses, including the one they're playing this week at the Southwind in Memphis. And uh, then finally, Dean Beeman let us design uh, some courses in-house. Bobby Weed was there and uh, had worked with Pete Dye and, and understood design and construction, and he was kind of a field guy, and I was doing the drawings. And we designed uh, several TPCs, TPC at Summerlin in uh, Las Vegas, uh, TPC at River Highlands up in Connecticut, and uh, TPC at Tampa Bay uh, down in Florida, and then some public courses as well uh, that the PGA Tour was involved with, bringing golf to a public course in Jacksonville, a couple of courses in Miami, that kind of thing. So that was really my, you know, I didn't go through the typical uh, apprentice thing with a designer, but I feel like I got plenty of Pete Dye um, ideas uh, through Bobby Weed and through a guy named Dave Postelweight, who was also at the tour at the time and was a field guy with, with um, Pete Dye for quite a while and helped me at Avenel and Southwind especially. You know, that kind of led to the original question was how did I get to IMG? So 
Bob Kane was really in charge of tennis. Uh, he went to UVA at the same time I did. He played tennis. I played golf. And and uh, we were together for a weekend at a friend, a mutual friend's, and he was talking about this idea that IMG wanted to have an in-house designer. Uh, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm at PGA Tour. I've got a fun job down there, but I'd be glad to talk to you. And then that eventually led to me uh, coming to Cleveland and uh, becoming IMG's in-house designer in the United States. Who was your first project with at IMG? Where was it, and who was the signature designer? Uh, it was Nick Faldo. Uh, Nick Faldo really and, and Greg Norman were really the two guys, the two professionals at IMG that were saying, you know, gee, we'd like to do some of this design work. And, and of course, Mark McCormick and Alistair Johnson had uh, kind of worked with Arnold Palmer and Gary Player and getting their design groups going. Uh, but I think uh, they, they just felt like, let's do this in-house rather than have Nick Faldo or Greg Norman do courses with one-off courses with different architects. Let's provide that service in-house. So uh, I think our first projects were in Thailand, uh, south of Bangkok, and we did one pretty early in China, in Wuhan, China, I did with Nick Faldo. Those were really the first courses, and that would have been probably 92, 1992. So, uh, and then it branched out from there. The uh, European guys were really the guys who had more presence uh, in Asia, and uh, I did courses with probably 20 of our clients uh, throughout Asia. Uh, we did a few courses in the United States and North America, but uh, most of the work was in Asia. How fortunate were you to have these front row seats to the development of the TPC network and to golf in Asia? That had to have been pretty cool to see the rise of those two things from on the ground and in the dirt. Well, it was. I, I mean, I feel like I was very lucky, and to come in at a at a pretty high level uh, it was a little bit late in my career compared to some guys. I didn't design a course till I was forty years old, but it is. You know, the, you're right. The TPC courses were high profile. Uh, we spent a lot of time there again with uh, player consultants. Fuzzy Zeller was a player consultant at uh, Memphis, and Hubert Green were the two player consultants there, and Fuzzy again out in, in Las Vegas. Um, so you, I started to get some real input from those guys as to what they like to see, uh, what they thought, uh, you know, were the elements of a good golf course, and they're very mindful of the people that play golf, and they play golf with the full range of talent, right, from rank uh, almost beginners that are playing maybe in a pro-am uh, and then all the way up, of course, to the very best golfers in the world. So they bring quite a lot in that regard to the design. Uh, so you're right. It was a great uh, front row seat, and uh, uh, we, you know, I'm very fortunate to be there. A lot of people think they have to graduate college and get going and what they're going to do right away or their career is going to be a failure. You mentioned that you didn't start designing golf courses till 40 years old. Did you ever wonder if that was going to happen? And what were some of the keys to staying patient? Well, 
yeah, I, I did wonder. Now, uh, part of me, when I got out of college, I played four years of golf at Virginia, and I wouldn't say I was tired of golf, but I was probably not as crazy about it as I was when I was 15, 16, 17 years old. And, you know, I had gotten turned on to other sorts of land planning, uh, landscape architecture, so I enjoyed a lot of what I did in the Washington, D.C. area, working for architecture engineering firms around there. And uh, I, you learn a lot. Of, I think it was Frank Lloyd Wright said uh, to somebody about a design, he said, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm designing an outhouse or a, an estate, uh, it's the same process. So it's that design process um uh, uh, and if, if you're designing a subdivision for Ryan Homes, uh, you still go through a lot of the same things that you do for a really upscale project and a lot of what you go through designing a golf course. You know, drainage is drainage. Grading is grading. Uh, if it doesn't drain, it doesn't work. And uh, about 90% of what you're trying to take care of on the ground is is drainage, water on, water off, and uh, uh, that's a lot of you know, kind of the nuts and bolts of what makes it work. So in order to do that, you've got to understand topography, understand uh, the soil, vegetation, uh, all that stuff. And really, the uh, I cut my teeth mostly on doing grading plans for Centex Homes in Gaithersburg, Maryland, um, had a huge project, and they would come in every day with a fistful of houses that they needed sited um, on this master plan, of uh, the site plan, and uh, I would have to crank out several of these a day, Just and that really, uh, I really cut my teeth on what a grading plan had to do to be acceptable and, uh, and a little bit creative. So... You can you, you can take those lessons. Uh, I think it, it served me well uh, in learning how to grade a golf hole. I mean, it's different, but it's really in in a lot of ways it's the very same, uh, very same impulse. What's more complex, being involved in a housing development in the D.C. Beltway or designing and building a golf course in Asia? Those are those are you know on, on one level those are pretty different things, but. You know, on another level, they're very similar. Um, golf, I think, one of the great things about being a golf course architect and, and golf course architecture in general is that it's uh, such a beautiful mix of engineering and art. And, you know, they're really, uh, to do a subdivision in uh, Maryland uh, or Washington, D.C., you have, uh, it's more engineering. You've got to make it work. Uh, you've got a, a elevation at the road you've got to meet. You've got to have 2% drainage around the house minimum. You've got to do this and do that to make, meet regulations and, and have it accepted. And there's plenty of review in a place like uh, Washington, D.C., uh, plenty of zoning constraints that you have to deal with. In uh, in a golf course in in Asia or anywhere, uh, the rules are not quite so stringent, and there's a lot more room for creativity. There's no 
there's no one right answer to any of this uh, the problems, but there are there are wrong answers. You know, you can you can mess it up, uh, so you want to be careful there. But there's a lot of leeway for uh, what the final solution might be, and that's really a very uh, I think that's a pretty unusual aspect uh, that's that's pretty unique to golf course design, uh, which is part of why it's so appealing, frankly. What was it like, and what is it like getting golfers who were in the peak of their careers to understand the value of drainage and irrigation and some of the highly technical stuff? Was that an educate? Was that an education process for the well, people you work with? Yeah. Uh, of course, yes, it was certainly an education process, and it takes a while. I mean, it's not reading topography and, and really visualizing uh, based on a plan is, uh, you know, it takes some time to get that skill. And I had already been doing it, really, for 20 years by the time I designed my first golf course. But uh, so, yes, there's plenty of education, and and, and really the the big constraint with the signature players that I worked with, uh, and especially because it was in Asia, is time. You know, those guys in the peak of their career, and, and uh, typically the Asian developers wanted a, uh, a designer who was in top form, like Nick Saldo when he was number one in the world, or Greg Norman when he was number one in the world. And you know that those guys are getting pulled every which way for their time. You know, IMG gets plenty of criticism for uh, maybe scheduling those guys a little too tight, um, too many opportunities. But uh, so getting them there in the field was always a challenge. Uh, you know, there'd be times of the year when it was impossible. Um, you're not, not going to go anywhere near the majors. You're not going to go, you know, it's mostly an end-of-the-year thing when the, most of the golf was over for the year. And so you had to be a little bit lucky and uh, very diligent to try to get them there at the right time so they could see uh, hopefully some holes uh, in different stages so they could see something that was still pretty raw. They could see something that was looking pretty finished and they could have something that was really finished. Uh, and that really helped a lot. You know, I did probably a dozen courses with Nick Faldo, and, you know, I think he got very good at visualizing from the topography. Uh, but that's because we'd been together in the field a lot, and uh, it, it takes time. Uh, that's really the, the biggest uh, constraint on, on their ability to uh, consult on the work was really their, their time and the, the number of visits that you could get him in the field you really dealt with some strong personalities who were ultra successful in their chosen profession how much of your longevity in the business was due to your people skills and the way to, to balance those different personalities yeah i suppose i i learned how to do that pretty well um but i found them almost to a, a person to be very uh understanding and really eager to learn, eager to soak it up. So uh, I don't, there really weren't a lot of ego clashes or anything like that uh, uh, where they were 
stomping around saying, no, we got it this way or that. They understood the constraints, um, and at least I, I tried to make sure they did understand the constraints that we were dealing with on a particular site. And that's, you know, that's an important thing. Um, there's plenty of people who, who can criticize a design of anything without really understanding all the constraints that were there or the opportunities or the constraints. And, uh, you know, that's something I think people have to have to bear in mind, uh, when they when they start saying, "Well, why didn't you do it this way?" Well, there might have been a very good reason I didn't do it that way, um, you know. Um, and I think the players, to a person, were pretty um, pretty accepting of that and eager to learn what the constraints really meant. What's a place or two that you arrived at and you? Th- your first impression was there's no way we could possibly build a golf course there. Did you run into those type of sites throughout your career? Yeah, yeah, I did. I ran into to both both sets of them, the sites that were uh, dead flat and wet and awful soils. And you thought, oh, my, how are we ever going to do this? And then sites that were too steep, really. Um, and a couple of examples where uh, – client would say a developer would say yeah you know we want uh, 36 holes on this property here isn't it fabulous and you'd say well how about 27 or how about 18 so we don't totally destroy this site Um, and we were successful sometimes talking them down a little bit Uh, but you know in this day and age uh, you can build a golf course on almost anything Uh, it's not like the old days where they were picking and choosing their sites a little bit more carefully, but they were unable to really alter the sites too much. You know, I'd, I'd consider myself uh, a minimalist on golf course design. If I, if the site uh, was worthwhile and, and was a good natural site, uh, but I'm not afraid to move a little dirt if you have to uh, to make things work. Um, but Certainly, we, we ran into all kinds of sites, for sure. What does that term minimalism mean to you, Brett? Well, I just, I think it means, to me, I think it means letting the site do the talking as much as possible and me being receptive to it. Um, and I, I'm a, a big fan of uh, the importance of routing a golf course uh, on, a, on a site that has some character has some movement uh you know that's that's a a site that's well suited for golf um that to me is not only the most fun part of the whole thing but uh, really in a lot of ways the most important part of the whole process is to try to get those holes to fit in there doing the very least amount of work you can now there's some sites you just have to you have to do a lot of work and move mountains and and move you know a million yards of material but uh give me a great site that uh has some character and uh i think the routing is is the most fun part and and most rewarding and, and maybe the most important part of the whole process that's what some of the most of the great old golden age architects were all about they were very good at that but but again, you know, we don't really fully appreciate
appreciate their constraints. A lot of times they had a choice of land, and or they would come up to a piece of land and say, no, I don't think so, and then how about that land over there, and then go look at that. It was a different world. Um, but, uh, yeah, to me, uh, the minimalist means just that. I'm not trying to show off. Uh, I'm not building a lot of bunkers that are uh, just to, well, look what I can do kind of bunkers. I'm, I'm putting bunkers strategically, I hope, that uh, uh, are, you know, are meaningful and kind of give visualization, but that are uh, very natural in appearance, that kind of thing. What is life like off the course on some of these project sites? Did you ever get to a place and you thought, boy, this is absolutely nothing like Cleveland. What am I going to do here when we're not on site? And that's assuming you had actually time off site. But, I mean, culturally, what were some uh, places where you're like, wow, I can't believe I'm here? Well, so all of Asia was like that for me in the beginning. Uh, you know, I had never been, I, you know, I'd certainly done a little bit of traveling as a kid and as a young adult, but I had never been to Asia. And just uh, to show up in Thailand for the first time, or China even more, China was really the the biggest change over the time that I was going um, from 1991 until now, uh, the place has changed so dramatically. I mean, the roads were horrible back in the day. The accommodations were pretty iffy. I remember reaching up to turn off a light um, in my motel room in China early on and getting zapped by the wires that were exposed. Uh, you know, and none of that. Now, Now the accommodations are, you know, five star and and the food is well the food's always been pretty good frankly but the uh, but the roads are better the airports are better they've built so many fast trains in China in the last 15 20 years uh, connecting almost every city around that it's uh, the place has just changed dramatically in that regard so yeah you get used to uh, eating some pretty unusual things that you never thought you'd eat. Uh, and uh, some some conditions that were pretty strange. And, and frankly, uh, that's maybe one of my, not regret, but uh, I sometimes wish I had spent a little more time just sightseeing and a little less time working. I was, we were pretty darn busy um uh, for a lot of those years, so I'd be in and out of a town in a, in a couple of days and on to the next one, um, so didn't really spend as much time kind of getting to know the culture as I maybe should have. That changed a little bit in the end because things were slowing down, but uh, and I did have a little more time, and I was able to take my family over there a couple times, but the cultures are very different. Uh, but fun to uh, experience for sure do you ever think we'll see golf develop like it did with the tpc network in the 80s and like it did with parts of asia when you're heavily involved again do you ever think we'll see those type of development booms again hmm. you know that's hard to say i mean uh, uh, it's it's hard to imagine that right now i do think china has a lot of pent-up 
demand if uh, if they ever got over their ban of new courses uh, and realized that golf is not really an evil thing. Uh, right now, they take a pretty dim view of it, and they have for the last five or six years. But uh, I think it's going to be, you know, a long time before uh, places like Thailand or Malaysia or Indonesia or the Philippines uh, really have another boom. You know, they 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 build out pretty fast, and uh, I think there's there's quite a bit of product over there that. Uh, for their needs at this point, I, I can't really see a lot of pent up demand there. There'll be some. You know, there's always room for the really good project, but uh, in the right location. But uh, in terms of a real boom, I, I don't. Uh, I'm not sure that's happening anywhere except maybe China. Uh, at least, well, and I don't know much about European. I never got to do any work in Europe. Maybe a little in the Middle East, but I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to really see a big boom like that. Uh, we kind of chased the boom around Asia when I was there, kind of starting in Thailand and Indonesia and then Malaysia. And then we we did a lot of work in the Philippines. Um, we did a lot of work in China, uh, and it was booming for quite a while. But and it's a great big country. You know, water will be their big issue in the north. Uh, in the south, they've got plenty of water and, and better climate for golf. And then we did a lot of work in the north, but there is uh, they're going to have problems with water going forward. I, it's hard to see them building a lot of new courses in the north of China, for sure. How were the players you worked with received in Asia? Oh, I think they were generally very well received. Um, you know, was there one that was, current, like, super popular in Asia that just every time you visited the site or when the grand opening was done, people kind of flocked to? You know, certainly uh, Nick Faldo, when he was number one, uh, had big followings. Um, one of my favorites to do courses with was Annika Sorenstam. Uh, we did a couple of courses with her in Korea. And, uh, you know, the Koreans are so... Uh, excited about golf and women's golf, and she got big crowds and uh, lots of lots of adoring fans. I mean, she, as a person who would, you know, just walk through the airport and she's got people uh, lining up to shake her hand and, and get an autograph. Um, so she she probably, in a way, is the most popular one in the right spot. You know, in in uh, Korea or Japan, she you know she's a superstar. You have to be really selfless to do what you do. Does it ever bother you that your name's not on your work, or is that just part of the game for somebody that has a position like yours? Yeah, I think it's part of the game. Um, you know, I don't think I'm a great big ego. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I, I'm satisfied with that people in the industry know who's doing a lot of the work. Um uh, that uh, and it's really I just felt extremely fortunate to be able to do all the work. I mean, I did about eighty-five courses in those uh, in my twenty-six years or so, uh, new courses, and uh, I feel you know just very fortunate to have had that opportunity. You know, if somebody else's name on it, that's okay. 
that doesn't bother me. Do you think it's even possible for a student going to University of Virginia or, or Cornell or wherever right now to, to have a career like you had? Well, it'll be more uh, renovation, uh, and, but there are uh, restoration. Uh, but, you know, there are uh, great careers uh, being built on that right now. A guy like Gil Hance uh, doing, you know, very upscale restoration work for name, you know, Baldus Raw and Wingfoot. And, you know, that's, uh, that's exciting in its own right, um, the stuff he's doing. And then, of course, that probably leads to some new course design. And as I said, there's, you know, there's always going to be the right, uh, the right place for a really, uh, you know, abandoned dunes or that kind of project or a stream song or some of these out of the way locations, but on fabulous ground that golfers who are looking for an experience are going to, are going to make sure they get to it's on their bucket list um, or down at the ocean course where I play a lot down in, in Kiowa, uh, that same thing. Uh, but I think you'd want to caution a, a young person getting into the business right now that, you know, it's not, uh, you're not likely to have the golden era that we went through in the eighties and nineties here when we were building, you know, 300 plus golf courses a year. Um, it's going to be more, restoration work it'll be a little harder to get that work and uh, you may want to have that's why something like landscape architecture is not a bad uh, not a bad education to have because that uh, offers you other opportunities besides strictly golf Uh, one of the things i really enjoyed doing partly because of my land planning background landscape architecture background was designing the housing along with the golf. I didn't design, I shouldn't say the housing, but citing the housing, citing the, here are the good areas for golf, just kind of marrying the golf and the development together. And, and plenty of the projects in, uh, in China and Asia had that aspect to them, uh, that they were, maybe there's a hotel, maybe there's some housing, not probably as much as your typical Florida development or Arizona development here with the, lots and lots of housing but uh that was always in the back of the developers minds where you know uh, even if they weren't going to do the housing right away uh, they wanted to have some opportunity to do that so i really enjoyed trying to give uh you know give the best of both worlds give make it a, a great golf experience but also let uh, some of the adjacent housing areas have great views of golf uh, and that's something I learned uh, at the tour as well, with um, starting at TPC at Avenel and continuing uh, at a lot of the TPC courses we did. That was really the impetus to a place like uh, the renovations we did at TPC at River Highlands, which is really a uh, pretty much a redo. Uh, but there was new property involved. They were at the introduction of several hundred houses and a complete rerouting of the golf course uh, from what it had been earlier. Uh, so uh, I enjoyed that aspect of, of the design, not as much as the golf, but certainly it was a important part and, and something I really enjoyed doing. Even though you're not bouncing 
from project to project all over the world at the rate you used to. You're still involved in the industry. You're a member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects Board of Governors. What does Correct. being involved in that board mean to you, and what are some of the things you're hoping to accomplish with the ASGCA's board? Well, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Again, because I was a little late to the game, I was pretty late to uh, uh, joining the ASGCA, but um, I've really enjoyed being a member there for, I guess, about 15 years. It's a fun time to be on the board. We're not just uh, status quo and, and watching the industry in full bloom. We're, we're uh, trying to face up to some of the some of the challenges that will be facing the industry going forward. Are you still involved in some projects? What type of work do you do now at this point of your career? I am. I'm, I've, I've got a few uh, mm. uh, renovation, restoration, mm. uh, master plan kind of things that I've got going on. And uh, mm. uh, I've got a couple of irons in the fire for some more uh, major renovations, I guess. But at this point in my life, I'm uh, not unhappy to kind of slow down and play a little more golf and uh, do a few few different things. I'm on the planning commission down at Kiowa, um, uh, you know, on the, being on the board here uh, at the ASGCA allows me a little more time to do things like that uh, rather than hopping on a plane every, you know, every few weeks to go to Asia. Um, so I'm, and I, I'm not missing that travel. I'll say that uh, it, it was good for 26 years, 27 years, whatever I was doing. But it was it was a lot, a lot of time away from family and uh, and friends. And it was uh, you know getting on that airplane uh, is not getting any easier these days. So I don't uh, I don't envy the guys that are having to do that all the time. But uh, you know. Uh, I certainly am open to doing some work, but I'm not uh, beating the bushes as hard as a lot of people are, for sure. Last thing here, how tough is the ocean course at Kiowa, and what does a golf course architect think when they're going around that that golf course? It's a wonderful course, uh, and when the wind blows, which is about every day, it's uh, it's a challenge, but you know, ultimately, I think it's a pretty fair course. It's, it's which is, I think, true of, of most of Pete's designs. Um, uh, I played it last summer with my sister-in-law, who's a fairly uh, new golfer. Uh, she's a good athlete, but she really doesn't get it off the ground very much, but she hits it very straight and with pretty good power. Um, and she did great on it. She broke 100 in... Uh, you know, because you, if you're straight and it's a very playable golf course and you're playing the right tees, uh, thank you, Alice, Di, uh, you're playing the right tees, uh, she had a wonderful time. So it's, you know, you miss it left and right, and you've got some pretty pretty big slopes to get up and down uh, because those greens are perched up pretty high, most of them. But, uh, uh, but I think ultimately it's a very fair test. Now, I did see that last time they had the PGA uh, there uh, a few years ago, there was about a 30-mile-an-hour crosswind there on Friday, and that drove the pros pretty crazy. They were all over the place. But 
that was kind of fun to see, uh, see them struggle. Didn't seem to bother Rory McIlroy. Somehow he got through it, but everybody else was uh, having trouble. So it's, that's a great test. Uh, and, uh, you know, Pete's a real visionary architect as well. And, uh, I enjoy it a lot, but I tell you, one of the, or the course I'd really like to play down there every day uh, the most is, is the river course, which is, a, I think, one of Tom Fazio's best courses. Uh, and really a fine course, difficult greens, great challenge, a lot of fun to play. Well, Brett, this was awesome and extremely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for what you've done over the course of your career to bring golf to so many people. I know thousands, if not millions of people, appreciate your efforts. Well, thank you, and that is certainly one of the things that you you hope happens is that uh, you you bring a lot of joy to a lot of people, and that's uh, that's a large part of why we do what we do. I'm sure. So, uh, thank you, and thank you for again for doing the tartan talks. Uh, I think they're a valuable thing and a lot of fun.